tapped out at my company. I need to have a degree in order to get the next promotion. doesn't matter what the degree is in, and it doesn't matter if I learn anything. I just got to have the piece of paper. So what's the cheapest, easiest way for me to get the piece of paper so that I can get the promotion? And then there's colleges out there that, you know, cater to that market. They say, well, we'll give you 57 credits for your life experiences. And then we'll give you these courses and then you'll do this on nights and weekends and then to that you'll have a degree. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey, welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Brad Baldridge. Brad is one of the nation's leading college financing experts. He teaches families the best ways to plan, save, and pay for college so they can make their children's college dreams come true without wiping out their own finances and their retirements. For 20 years, he shared his expertise and insights through his private practice and as a blogger and podcast host for his company, Taming the High Cost of College. He's done college funding workshops and seminars, too numerous to count, and he's directly helped thousands of families save for college. He shows them how to find the right school, maximize need-based aid, scholarships, minimize student loan debt, and make your kids' college come true, again, without wiping out that uh, finances and the retirement program. Brad, I'm excited to have you on. Welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So first, where do you call home? I'm in the Milwaukee area, suburbs of Milwaukee. But I've always been in Wisconsin my whole life and moved to the big city when I graduated from college. So you grew up in Wisconsin? I did. Yep. Out in the small towns? Yep. A little town called Mayville. And I literally lived on a street called Easy Street. <laughs> do you live on Easy Street now? I do not, no. <laughs> okay. The real world caught up with me. Well, that happens. You must have kids in college. I do. Yeah, yeah. I've got uh, two in college and one in high school right now. So I'm doing college planning for years, but now recently I am eating my own cooking, as they say. Yeah, practicing what you preach. So what did you learn about money and entrepreneurship growing up? I'm guessing small town, was it a farm town, ranch town? A little bit, but it just, again, just a small, it was, we had small manufacturers and you know it was four or 5,000 people. We had the stoplight when I was young. You go to the bus stoplight in town and you turn left or you turn right. And you know it grew while I was there. So it, it, you know, we had more stoplights by the time I left. But yeah, I mean, it was what I learned growing up was, you know, kind of just kind of very basics like most people. I actually went and got my engineering degree and then moved into finances as I became an adult. I got involved in rental real estate. That led me to financial planning and that led me to a career change. So I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. Do you remember any of those money experiences, like your first spending experience, you know, going to the bank with a passbook savings account, those sorts of things that your parents kind of worked with you through? Oh, sure. I mean, for me, it was like the first summer, I had a paper out from the time I was 12 or 13. I think it had to be 12 to get the route. So I probably had a paper out from 12 and then summer jobs in high school. And you know, I distinctly remember spending my own money to buy a Honda moped when I was 16, which then gave me all kinds of freedom because I could tool around town with it. Do you have any memories of conversations about money with your parents? I mean, so let me explain what I'm getting to. I talked to a lot of different people on here and you kind of started with the idea that, well, got these same lessons that most people get. And what I found is 
most people don't get any lessons at all. So I'm just curious what it was that you got there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was kind of the life lessons of, well, if you want that, you're going to have to pay for it yourself because we're not covering it. But I don't know that. And again, I'm a financial advisor as well. I would say that, you know, my upbringing wasn't different than most people where money wasn't really talked about. I had no idea what my parents earned or what happened there, which I think is very typical of the typical college kid that I'm working, you know, planning for doesn't know a lot about the family finances either. So yeah, I, like I said, I was probably pretty typical of, you know, that's money. We don't talk about it. And from one side and the other side is, well, if you want to, you know, go out and waste money on a cheeseburger and fries, well, that's your money you're spending, not ours. Right. Wow. Um, Very good, you know, heartland money lessons. I got some of those, but my parents were a lot more, I would say open with how little we had. So I knew what we made. Like my dad showed me the tax returns when I was nine. Uh, and it was thinking back on that and having conversations about that is pretty scary. Hey, taming the high cost of college, but I know you're an advisor. So I want to know, cause I don't know many advisors that focus in this area. And I want to know how you got from, Hey, I'm going to, whatever you're doing to being a financial advisor to focusing on college planning specifically. Yeah. I got involved in college planning 18 years ago now, well, maybe a little more time flies. 2015, I guess. So 18 years ago. And again, I had done some, I did a lot of seminars and a lot of teaching on financial topics. And then I got a little bit of training on teaching another seminar on college. And that one I enjoyed a lot. And when we got a lot of response, so I kind of started focusing in on it. And the more I dove into it, the more I realized, you know, college was at the time was getting more and more expensive. It was becoming a big deal. And most families are very stressed out about it. And there's lots I could do to help them where they just, again, the average family didn't understand need-based aid or merit aid or loans or how the process worked. And they certainly didn't know how to optimize and, you know, how to build a budget and determine what the reasonable price to pay is and negotiate with the school and all the different things that you can do. Most families, again, just didn't really understand most of it. So I could add a lot of value. And I enjoyed it. So I just kind of kept doubling down and launched my own podcast and did all that type of thing. And the more I got involved, the more I specialized in it. I think there's a nice lesson there for everyone that's listening. And that, you know, you did a thing, you did a thing you really enjoyed. And it wasn't that you were great at it, but you enjoyed it. And by, because you enjoyed it, you pursued it and you got better at it, better at it, better at it. You added value. There's a huge lesson in that for folks that are trying to launch and earn and build something or be better in their career. Pursue what you love to do. If you pursue what you love to do, you'll get better. You'll iterate. You'll get better. And that's how you get successful. So you talked about college being expensive 20 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, I got an 18-year-old going to college next year. I got to tell you, college is insane right now. Even more insane. It's gotten more and more and more insane over the last 20 years. There's some really massive, staggering statistics around student loans, student debt. Can you just paint us a rough picture of that real quick? Yeah, I mean... The challenge, I think, for most families is college is expensive. And if you don't plan well, there's a couple different loans that are available at the end of the process where you can say, well, we didn't plan well, but here's this loan. We just sign up for this loan and it solves our problem. So I think there's a certain population that, again, as kind of a default, they sign up for the loan because they don't know what else to do. Right. And they maybe they needed to have a loan. Maybe they didn't. It depended on how well they planned. But that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is college has always been worth it mathematically. So the colleges raised their prices and we still came. And then they raised the prices and we still came. And now the 
the market for college is all of us that went to college as parents and we're saying, I loved college. I want my kid to have the college experience. And if there's a way I can make it happen, I will. And that's what's, you know, part of what's driving up the cost of the residential concept of college. Just real quick, I want to just, so are you suggesting that college may not be the right path for some and we should think about that? It's absolutely the wrong path. Anybody that says college for everyone, that drives me crazy. There's a whole bunch of people that need an education, but education and college are not the same thing. Right. Right. You can get an education by being an apprentice, going through the military, school of hard knocks. You know, there's all, you know, starting your own business. There's all kinds of ways that you can become an expert. And let me give you a great example of that, right? You can become a musician. And if you can play your instrument well, nobody cares how you learn it. Just show me what you can do. Oh, you do that well, you're hired. Not, well, you went to the wrong school for that. We can't hire you. Right. You know, graphic design would be another great example. Most businesses are like, oh, you made that? I want something just like that. How much does it cost? No, where'd you get your education, right? And then you get to other areas where it's like, well, you need to have the degree in order to get the job, even though you might have enough experience doing a very similar job that, you know, you can run circles around the typical graduate. So there's a lot of that politics around the degree that I think is one of the problems. And that's changing. You know, businesses used to say must have a four-year degree on every position just so that they were reasonably confident you could read and do basic math because a lot of high school graduates now don't right. necessarily have, an, have, a, have much skills in that area. And they weren't being challenged around lawsuits or discrimination or whatever it was. You know, so it was an easy way for them to take the 1,000 applications and winnow it down to 500 and then go from there. Now that the markets are tight, a lot of places now are saying, we're going to take that off because we need to get more applicants. And even some states are changing their rules around, well, these jobs don't really need a degree. I don't know why we say that. Let's take that off. I wonder, I mean, what you mentioned, one of the functions of college getting more expensive is we all want to go, we all want to go, we want to go. And at the same time, there's not more supply. So what are the options? I'm not going to go to college, like list four or five of the things that kids who are maybe entering high school should be thinking about. Right. And again, you know, there's the high academic achievers. It's definitely the right path. And then there's certainly careers and degree where you've got to have the degree, but alternatives would be instead of just the four-year degree is the two-year, you know, going to the trade schools, being apprenticeships, just getting out there and going to work. There's a lot of certificate programs now where you can learn to program or do other things like that. With Again, it's education. It's just not a formal degree. I wonder if you have this experience in your client base. Like some of my most successful clients, like went all the way through college and then started a painting contracting company or a plumbing company or a electrical company. And they are just, they're doing so incredibly well, having nothing to do with learning what they did and, you know, doing what they did in college. And I I wonder if that's your experience as well. Oh, absolutely. And there's a whole lot of people when you ask, how did they get here? And and obviously you understand this because you asked that question on your podcast and you just asked me, but you know, I have an engineering degree. I moved into financial planning. Now, do I regret getting an engineering degree? No, I learned numbers. I learned problem solving. I learned how to learn, and then I just took all that ability and applied it to financial planning. Right. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing college planning, right, is 
you know, a lot of the stuff I'm doing, I invented it. There was nobody to teach me how to do it. It's, gee, I got to learn how this stuff works. And, you know, and there's a few of us out there that, where we're working together and saying, oh, well, how do you explain this? Or what is, what's your opinion of that? And where we, you know, there is some knowledge sharing and, and it's a growing field, right? I mean, 10 years ago, I knew of five or 10 people that did this. Now it's more like 50 or 100. Wow. So it's growing. And there's, a, you know, and again, there's a lot more people that need help than we can ever help one-on-one still. So financial advisors, et cetera, are moving into the space. But put that in context, there's thousands of advisors now that help students. So one of the things that most families don't realize is there are professionals out there that can help you. You know, I help typically parents figure out how to plan and pay for college. There's my counterpart that would help a student figure out how to apply to college, choose a major, figure out what they want to be when they grow up, write the essays, all those, you know, test prep, all the things that the student needs to do. There's experts now that focus in on those various areas. And again, sometimes it's a very specific expert. I'm an essay writing expert. All I do is essays for you. So if you need the whole thing, when you're going to need more than one person. Or desk prep would be a common one, right? This is where you go for desk prep. All the other stuff is somewhere else. This is not where I wanted to go, but you're talking about something that I think is really critical to understand. And there's all these resources that are available to people, both for the student and for the parents. And those people who access those resources have a higher probability of success in college, both getting into the right college, the essays, and paying for college. So it suggests to me that there is, I'm going to just use the word, there's a privilege. And that privilege is actually creating kind of an arms race in college. Do you think that adds to the expense? I mean, the people who are paying for all these services can then also afford the college and the college notices that, raises the rates, raises the prices a little bit. It just, it seems like it's, I don't know where that ends. Yeah. And there's some very truth to that, right? So, but there's a great book out there, Who Gets In and Why, and I can't remember who wrote it, but he talks about, you know, the top 50 schools or hundred schools. I mean, and again, it's kind of a slippery slope. It's not, there's no official line <laughs> where you cross from one to the other. It's just, but the very, you know, Harvard, as an example, they could charge whatever they want. Right. And then what they do is a combination of politics, you know, because of their, you know, and other things that it doesn't really impact their budget that much. I mean, it, I heard somewhere, and I don't know how accurate this is, but their tuition receipts is like 14% of their budget. Right. For the yeah. undergrad tuition. So it doesn't really matter. And they could easily cover that with their endowment if they wanted. Or I mean, they it's just not an issue. Right. And they are getting top dollar because they can. And what it really boils down to is, you know, it's just like the name brand. You know, it's Gucci or what other name brand. It's like, you really need a $2,000 pair of shoes? What do they do that a, I mean, an $800 pair of shoes doesn't do? Or a $40 pair of shoes. Or a $40, right? <laughs> exactly. So, but in the end... Why do they charge 2000 because they can. Yeah. Yep. And people will pay it, you know, and that's the reality in some markets with college, other markets, they're much more tuition driven and they are cost conscious and they, you know, lots, you know, their target markets don't have unlimited funds. So they have to prove that what they provide is worth what you're paying. So, you know, there's a, and that's why I think a lot of people, they take something very general you know, college for everyone. Well, what does that mean? What, when you say college, are you talking about the four-year residential thing? Are you talking about 
some form of two-year, four-year online courses, whatever, you know, so it's when you get from the sound bites and the general understanding to the specifics into the weeds, it's a completely different process. Why do you think like Khan Academy and all these online learning areas where there is, we sat our kids down during the pandemic during, you know, and said, okay, your teacher's not really doing a great job with, you know, pre-calc. Sit down in front of these videos and you can learn pre-calc or calc or astrophysics or, you know, biochemistry. You can, how come that hasn't affected the price of college? Because you can learn the same stuff from great, intelligent, brilliant people for free online. And it doesn't seem to be affecting college tuition rates at all. Well, right. But if you talk about the average student, right, the average student in college, if the professor said, I'm canceling class next week, they would say, great. Now, <laughs> wait a minute. I paid for those classes. I'm here to learn. And now I'm getting less for my money. Well, am I going to get a refund? You know, it's just a completely different mentality, right? Is, well, tell me what I need to know that's on the test so that I can get the piece of paper. And that's the mentality of a lot of students, right? Especially at certain levels. There's the person that goes back to school that says, I've topped out at my company. I need to have a degree in order to get the next promotion. doesn't matter what the degree is in, and it doesn't matter if I learn anything. I just got to have a piece of paper. So what's the cheapest, easiest way for me to get the piece of paper so that I can get the promotion? And then there's colleges out there that, you know, cater to that market. They say, well, we'll give you 57 credits for your life experiences. And then we'll give you these courses and then you'll do this on nights and weekends. And then to that, you'll have a degree. That I've never person, heard of. Right. Well, and again, does that person get the same experience than if they went to the flagship state university in their state and worked hard for four years? Probably not. But again, it's just. Someone's looking to check a box. They don't really care what they learn. They already know what they need to know. At least they believe that. And I think that's the biggest challenge is there's people out there that are the lifelong learners and are curious and want to learn stuff. And then there's a whole bunch of people that are going through the motions because they have to. So you know, we, I, I have to go to college. I have to get a degree because my parents expect it because my future career expects it because I got to do it. But if they're going to make it easy instead of hard, I did. I'd love that not why well, I want to learn as much as I can and be as productive as I can be when I get out and, you know, become the expert or something. People don't, you know, again, a lot of students don't think that way. We have this heavy educational system so that we have structure for folks who need structure. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to learn it because it's going to be on the test next week, not because it's going to advance your career five years from now. It's well, it, chunk it down to something that students can handle and you know, did I need to learn all that calculus? Not really. I didn't use it in my first job, and I certainly don't use calculus in much in financial planning. Right. But again, it's one of those things where you got to learn what you've got to learn in order to get the degree, whether it's fair or not is a different question. So let's talk about college planning, since that's the expertise, rather than the structure around it than the philosophy. When you work with clients or when I work with clients, I think of things in timeframes. So when you're thinking about college planning, how do you break it down? Right. So the first major time frame concept is what I would call early stage planning versus late stage planning. So early stage planning is pretty easy to understand. You know, it's I've got a kid in middle school and college is coming someday. Should I be doing something saving or planning in some way and, or grade school or, hey, we're pregnant. Let's get started on our college savings plan, whatever it might be. 
But then we have late stage planning, which is typically starts sophomore, junior year in high school. I think and it needs to start earlier in general. And we'll you know, remind me to get into that. But in high school, now you may have done a great job and have a big pile of money for college, but you still have to do the late stage planning, which is, well, how do we pick the school we're going to attend? And how do we get accepted at school? And who's going to do what around test prep and essays and applications? And if we have a big pile of money, how do we use it efficiently? Most people don't have a pile big enough that you can just write the checks. So now they're saying, how do we supplement with loans or additional savings? Or is a student going to work? How are we going to be fair among our three kids? What if one goes more expensive than the other? Is that okay? Or do they have to each get the same dollar amounts? What, you know, and again, there's lots of ways that you can do this. But then for a lot of families, it's, you know, I, do I really have to pay $75,000? i have heard some people only pay 45000 at that same school. How does that work? And can I be that person, please? And the answer is maybe. So understanding need-based aid and merit aid and the whole process is all kind of the late stage stuff. And that, you know, again, and that's where a lot of effort and planning and you, you've got an 18 year old, so I'm, you're probably in the thick of it where it's like, okay, got to visit schools and figure it out and what's the right path. And yeah, he's the, I'm not going to let him listen to this because of what you said earlier. <laughs> he's going to the Herb Albert School of Music. And so the, the idea of, well, if you just know how to sing and play the guitar, you don't need a degree. I'm like, no, 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 go get your degree. Like, go get your degree. He's going to get his degree for sure. But he's doing it in, in sort of music business and music production. So he's definitely going to learn a lot of new stuff. So talk about those two time frames a little bit more. And actually, I would like to peel back the onion a little bit on the late stage. I heard this from our own college entrance support team at Mike's kid's school that a lot of people go to private school for roughly the same price as a public school because of not necessarily need-based aid, but this thing called merit aid. Can you just talk about merit aid? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so there's two major forms of aid from colleges and it gets the label of scholarships. I applied to XYZ college and they gave me a $32,000 scholarship. So let's say a school costs 65,000 and they give, they gave you a $32,000 scholarship. So now it really doesn't cost 65, it costs 33 and your local state school might cost 28 or 30 and you're saying oh okay well that's pretty much the same and then for some students they might put another you know leadership scholarship five thousand dollars or need-based scholarship five thousand dollars or soccer scholarship ten thousand dollars or whatever it might be so in a lot of cases the private schools know they're competing with the state schools and they know what they cost and they know where they need to be to have a shot at certain kids in general, they don't know you specifically, but that's a lot of colleges spend a lot of time and effort and money playing that game of, well, it's a really tough sell to say the local state school is 28 and we're 70, right? A few people would pay that, but most won't. But if the local school, the state school is 28 and we're 32, you know, we've got some things that are better. We've got some things that are worse too, right? But it, there's some people that would like us $4,000 better than the state school and they'll pick us. That, you know, and then and there's other markets where they say, well, you know, we don't have to be that close. We can be at 45 or 50 for this type of student because, you know, again, the family can afford to pay it and they're looking for our name brand and they don't want to go to the local state school or the student can't get accepted into the state, you know, into the flagship state school. So here in my state, as an example, there's University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is our flagship that is world renowned, but they take the top 
10 or 15% of the class. You've got to have decent test scores and grades. And in the suburbs, it's even more competitive than that because they can't take all the high academic achievers from all the suburbs of Milwaukee because it would fill them up and they still have to take kids from all over the state. So it gets pretty competitive from that suburb. So then some of these parents are willing to say, well, I'll pay to send my kid to Loyola or to Marquette or to University of Denver or some other school that people have actually heard of versus University of Wisconsin Stout, which again, if you live in Wisconsin, you've heard of it for sure. But if you're, you know, if you're not a Wisconsinite, you probably haven't heard of it. And that's the reality, right? Is some parents will, you know, there's nothing too good for my kid and I will pay it, whatever it is. And there's some parents that say same thing, but there's limits because, you know, we're not completely wealthy. And then there's some parents that are like, well, we need to make this work within our budget and we just can't, you know, there are, root, there are limits to what we can do. And of course, then there's some parents, well, well we really can't help at all. Somehow our students going to have to figure it out. The market's for all of those people. I want to talk about a couple of preliminaries. And one of the ones I want to talk about was the idea of college visits. And I don't know if you get into that and recommend these kinds of things to kids, but I know when I went to school, you know, I applied to four schools. I got into three, I visited two, I made a decision. Right. My son, when he applied, he applied to 15 schools because that's, I guess, the new norm, like 12 to 15 schools is just what's required. Again, I go back to the cost of this process. It is insane. I mean, it's a hundred bucks per application. If you have to do a supplemental application for something else, because he's in music, it's another 50 bucks. And then to visit 10 schools, you got to go to Boston. You got to go to San Diego. You got to go to Denver. You got to go flying over the country. To yeah, exactly. So I would call that the far and wide kid. Right? I mean, there's some kids out there that academics are the, is their thing or they're, let's say they're an athlete and they're getting interest all over the country. Or again, they're a kid that wants to study someplace far away, right? My daughter, who's in high school currently, has already told us she's not going to any school in Milwaukee area. Case closed. Not happening. <laughs> and that's very typical, right? And again, and some students are just the opposite, right? Is I really want to be close to home. I'm not going to go much farther than a two-hour drive, let's say. Or I really want to live at home and go to college. You know, there's, so there's all types. And that's, I think, and that's part of the challenge is most families need to start working on that sooner than they realize in order to work that out. How important are those college visits, do you think? I mean, my opinion is they're very important. Yeah, okay. I've taken, so my oldest, he's a, academics was his thing. He chose to go to a private high school and did well. And now he's off at a relatively competitive college and doing well. My second son, not, you know, he wanted to stay relatively close to home, kind of everything I learned with my oldest didn't apply to my next. My oldest, we did visit sophomore year of high school. We started because I'm in the business and I understand that you're going to visit 10 schools and you can either do those visit 10 schools over a year and a half, or you can do it all in 10 weeks. But either way, you know, make your life a little easier and do it spread out a little bit. Again, 10 might not be the right number for you. Some families, the right number is three schools. But until you figure it out, you know, again, and that's part of the process, right? As well, well, my son, who's wanted to stay relatively local, there wasn't as much to, to look at. And it was a little easier process. And we didn't need the head start. But now with my daughter, who said, I'm not going anywhere in town, kind of the same thing. I did a, we did a sophomore visit with her this past spring. And it was a low key, low pressure, you know, and we did a local school. So she's already told us she's not going to that school. And I said, I don't care. It's convenient. We're going to go visit it. You're going to learn about some possible majors you're thinking about. 
their physical therapy isn't any different than physical therapy in St. Louis. It's just we don't have to drive to St. Louis to learn. So let's go here on a Sunday afternoon. It's a nice day. We'll stay as long as you want to, and we'll leave when you want to. But you need to see what a college looks like because I've been on lots of college campuses. I have two older boys, that, but she didn't go along. So when I asked her, do you want a big school or a small school? She's like, well, I don't know. What does a big school look like? What does a small school look like? I don't, you know, and that's part of the process, right? Is getting them out there and letting them see some things and getting some feedback of, I like this, I don't like that. This is a deal killer. If it's like this, I'm not interested, right? I've had parents tell me we took our student on campus and they wouldn't even get out of the car. It's like, they said, we drove onto campus, they said, nope, not for me, let's go home. <laughs> so I would have made them get out of the car and do the tour anyway, if it, once you've invested that much time and effort. They didn't, but, and that could have been avoided by doing some virtual work ahead of time where you can, you know, get a basic tour and see some of the basics just by going to the website and watching some of the videos. Yeah. You don't, you know, so when we talk about visits, they don't all have to be live in person, fly to the campus. Some of them should be. And how much of that you have to do really depends on your kid and what's important. You know, you have a, a music person so you can probably relate to this i had a student that wanted to learn trumpet in college and he was interested in jazz so one of his big projects was to figure out all the trumpet instructors were they classically trained or jazz trained he didn't want to try and learn jazz from a classically trained trumpet instructor huh. you know and it turned out really good for him because once he was on campus you know jazz musicians on campus you know had quartets and opportunities and they were out in the clubs playing and going to weddings and doing all kinds of stuff. And then when they needed a sub, you know, they'd suck him in. So he got some experience, you know, I got into the crowd by picking the right school. Whereas, and, you know, and I didn't think of that, but yeah. you thought of it. That's so great. That's where, when you start delving into this, you know, when you go on a college visit and they say, they keep showing me this fantastic stadiums that they have. I don't care about football. So why, do they, you know, can we go look at where the biology students study? Because I'm not interested in, you know. No, yeah, know what you want going in, right? Yeah, know what you want. Hey, another preliminary question is testing. This, I mean, post-pandemic and post the college gate scandal a couple, three years ago, SATs, ACTs, it was a huge argument in my house about do we do it? Do we not do it? We ended up doing it. We ended up not submitting it all the places. What do you think about it? What's your take on where that's going? Yeah, I think for some families, it's still a good route to go. Some colleges are now reinstating the okay. desire for it. A lot of other colleges essentially didn't, they can go test optional because in the end, they didn't care what the score was going to be anyway. Because if you could have decent numbers elsewhere, they'd have let you in anyway. Well, there's a lot of schools where they admit 80% of the students or 90% of the students where Again, if you show any aptitude at all, whether it's a good high school transcript or a good test score or good extracurriculars or any one thing, any reason for them to say yes is all they're looking for. So you don't need to have a test score because if you have good grades. Now, conversely, if you don't have good grades, maybe you need the test score, right? If you barely squeaked your way out of college or out of high school, maybe you got approved to the college by giving a decent test score. Yeah, even though your grades are poor, you did learn. Again, because a lot of kids can get through high school now and really, literally not know how to read and not how to know how to do basic math. 
And when they go to college, their first classes will be what they should have learned in high school. They will take math 098 and English 098 where they learn the basics that anybody that paid attention in high school would not have to take because again, that's where you learn that, that was right. basics. Right. So the only other sort of early thing to think about, or the, the prereq kind of thing to think about your testing, your college visits, every family fills out this FAFSA. And I realized that this year, the FAFSA is changing entirely from last year to this year. And I know that we don't have all the data on it yet, but can you just kind of walk us through what some of the changes are going to be this time? Right. Yeah. So the, in, the government's put through an effort to make the FAFSA simpler. So it's going from like a hundred and some questions to like 36 questions. So first of all, thank you for that. That's good. <laughs> it is and it isn't. So, and, but because the college is now going to get a lot less data. So now they're probably going to ask for another form because if all I get is your name and the, some of the very, very basics, you'd be like, okay, well, if I'm going to give you a $20,000 scholarship, I'd like a little more information right. to, to make sure I'm giving it to the right families. So, I mean, so I think that's a slippery slope, but again, I could be wrong. I don't know for sure where it's going, but again, they're simplifying it. They're making it easier to get at least the basics done. They're being more generous for the Pell Grants and some of the other things. So it's a net benefit, especially for the lower income families where the Pell will now be predictable and all that type of thing. But what it also does is it's a planning opportunity now where you essentially look at your income and if you're under a certain line you automatically get a maximum Pell and if you're under another line you automatically get a minimum Pell but it looks back two years so this the kids that are the first class that are the guinea pigs of this system are the I guess we're in the summertime now so they're going to be seniors this fall so the class of 20 high school class of 2024 is the first class that is going to go through the system and they're going to do it based on 2022 taxes. So if your 2022 taxes is 50 bucks over that line where you get a maximum Pell, you know, that's pretty unfortunate because mm. had you known, you probably could have done something to get your income down by 50 bucks, you know, give something to charity or pay your healthcare a certain way or whatever, right? I mean, there's things you can do. So that bodes, you know, so what does that mean for people in the real world. Well, that means you need to do this planning when you have a high school sophomore or freshman. Understand what the rules are. And it used to be, you, it didn't matter what you did as far as your retirement contributions. Now it can make a big difference because they, in the past, they always added back your retirement contributions. Now they don't add them back because they don't want to, they, they limited the question that says, how much did you put into retirement? So they don't know what you put into retirement if it doesn't show up on your tax return. And for most people, it doesn't show up on your tax return. Small business owners and self-employed, it may show up on your tax return. So they're at a disadvantage because for them, it may get added back in because they'll be able to see it. But hmm. for most people, if you put more in your retirement or you pay for healthcare or HSA or those types of things, it just makes your W-2 smaller and they never see your W-2s. So whatever you transfer to your 1040 is what works. So people that understand taxes, you know, there's things you can do and probably should do. And, and that's just the reality of college. They keep adding these new programs and different ways of doing things. So we're going to help this group with this idea. We're going to help that group with that idea and so forth and so on. So what it really boils down to now is you got to figure out what groups do I belong to or what groups could I belong to? Because for people like this, they've got this program. 
And so people like that, they've got that program. And I'm close to some of these, but if I change things a little bit, I might qualify for this or that. Is it worth it to pursue that? Is there any hope for a parent that's filling out the FAFSA to understand this three? So I'm a financial advisor. I've done this for 25 years. I would not have known that I needed to think about this two years ago for my son. And no one could have known because the rule just changed, right? But even without the rule change, like I don't really know how all these pieces fit together. There's no education advisors get, there's no expertise in this unless the advisor seeks out the ability to offer this kind of extra support. And you sought it out. And so are you up to speed on all the changes as they come down? Are you reading regulations? Are you commenting? Do Congress people call you and say, hey, what do your families think about this? Not at that level, no. Oh, okay. uh, but I am, you know, again, I'm not, and the stuff isn't secret. It's a government program. It's, but yeah. somebody's got to wade through the, the stuff. And, you know, there's, there's a few, few experts out there and certainly all the financial aid offices. Like, so I go to the trainings that a college financial aid office would go to to learn what's going on with these changes. And, you know, I do have a newsletter and a podcast and all these changes I'm putting out there. So yeah. it's not a secret. And then getting back to your original question of, is there any hope? Well, I have a course and I'm, the course is going to be updated with all these changes. So for people that want to spend the, put the time and effort in, you can learn it. It's not rocket science per se, it, but it does take some time. So that's, I think that's the reality for most families. I could change my own, own oil. I just don't want to. I could right. do my own taxes. I just don't want to. Or oh, I, I'm kind of weird that way. I enjoy doing my own taxes. I buy the software every year and I play with it and then I learn how it works and I optimize it and figure out what to do with my, you know, retirement plan each year and figure out if it should be in a Roth or not. You know, and I'm, you know, so there's those closet financial planners or closet people that, you know, enjoy the stuff and more power to you. You can sign up for my course learn what you need to learn. And again, your son, as an example, your life's a little more complex. You're talking about private schools all over the country compared to, well, my son's just going to go to the local tech school and he's going to sign up for automotive repair. He's got, you know, and in 18 months, he's going to graduate with a certificate and go to work. That's a low cost option. He's not, there's no dorm. You know, it's just a simpler process. Then again, I'm shopping around looking at state schools and private schools and this within state and out of state and you know maybe you've got twins or you know so there's this, the basics and then there's all the things that make life more complicated yeah yeah you know, another great example is if you get an inheritance while college is going on you know some inheritance comes tax-free some of it comes with an income tax tied to it if you inherit an ira or an annuity be careful what you do with that because that changes your taxes and for a lot of families, they would have no idea that, oh, well, I inherited an annuity. I told them to cut me the check and send it to me. And then I had to put it on my taxes. And then that went on my FAFSA. And then that blew me out of the water. Yep. Whoops. I had another option. I just didn't bother to figure out which one was better. All these things fit together. Options. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And, you know, and if you've got an athlete, life gets more complicated. If you have a musician where they're going to do auditions and scholarships are based on current skill level that makes, you know, so musicians and performing artists of various sorts, you know, there's a different process. If your family owns a business and that type of thing, you have control over your, some of your statistics more so than if you're not a business right. owner, but, and you can set up tuition reimbursement plans and you can hire the kids in the business and, you know, there's things you can do. Give us a quick thumbnail sketch of like the time commitment for the course, and we'll put a link in the notes. Right. The time for the course would probably be 10 hours ish 
And I mean, again, it's going to save you time. Totally. If you're going to do it yourself, for sure. Yep. Because it'll teach you what you need to know and help you, you know, again, if you don't, you know, here's some questions to ask. And if you answer no to these three questions, then don't worry about this whole idea, right? Do you have an athlete? No. Okay. Well, then don't learn about athletic stuff. That's one simple. But will you qualify for need-based aid? I don't know. Well, here's how you figure that out. And once you have this answer, if the answer is no, need-based aid is not something I need to worry about, well, then don't worry about it. What is your plan around scholarships? You know, you could spend hours and hours and hours learning about scholarships only to realize that most of them are a waste of time for your situation. Do you ever, I'm curious because there are people that we work with, you know, as advisors that we start doing this when they're pregnant or when they're one or two years old and, you know, their savings program is robust. They've got plenty of money. College is going to be covered. Do you ever then see people get lazy in the second part of the planning and like, okay, now you're in, let's look at these scholarships. And they're just like, we have the money. Let's not, you know, we're tired. Let's not look at these scholarships. I think I see that all the time. For sure. I think. And I think most financial advisors actually kind of ferment that a little bit where they say, okay, well, you want to go to Harvard, it's crazy expensive, save 2000 a month and you'll have this big pile of money when we get there. And then you write the check. It's not an efficient way to do it because it, you might be like, you realize if your kid's a rocket scientist and can get into Harvard, they could go to some of these other schools and get large merit scholarships. So you don't have to pay 85,000 for Harvard. You could pay, 45,000 for Case Western or 45 or 35,000 for Loyola, or you could get a free ride at this little school that nobody's heard of because right. you would be the presidential scholar. There's three of them every year that don't pay anything. And you're the type of kid that wins that. So if you, you know, so for some kids, you know, being the top dog at a medium school might appeal to them. Yeah. Other kids, it's like, well, I'm going to go where all my peers are smarter than me that'll drive me to work hard and there's no right or wrong again, but again, most people don't even think about this stuff because they run out of time. So I want to, uh, there's something I do in every one of the episodes and we try to make it really, really simple. So I want to pretend for a second that you've got parents of a five-year-old come to you and you know, they're just starting this whole college planning process. What is the first thing that you recommend that those parents do that will reduce their future, you know, students issues around college entrance and college and paying for college? Tell them if education is important to them, then they, they ought to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Because I can't tell you how often I'll meet a parent of a 17-year-old. They earn $200,000 $200, a year, let's say, and they can't afford to save any money for college. Haven't been able to afford any money for college. They're walking into it and saying, you know, I don't know how we're going to cover this. And then the next person I talk to earns 100000 and they've got a little bit saved for college. And they say that guy that, you know, if I told them about the guy that was just here that earns twice as much and can't afford to save for college, they're going to say, what, how I'm pot, you know, if they had an extra hundred thousand dollars, it'd be so easy. But the reality is most people learn how to spend everything they earn before they learn how to save it. And college is a great example of it will haunt you if you don't factor it in. Yeah. So because people will buy the bigger house and they'll sign the kids up for more sports that are more expensive and they'll take bigger, fancier family vacations. And then when they get to college, they'll be like, oh, maybe we could have done something different. Have you ever heard the comment from a parent who says, oh yeah, we're going to take this big six week vacation to, and it's for education for the kids. 
And they're not saving for college? Have you heard that? I've heard yeah, that. Right. So another great one is, well, we're spending a lot of money on this private high school. And one of the things that's going to do is it's going to save money on college. And that is a fallacy. Yeah, I've lived that fallacy completely. Like, I absolutely the case. So what happens is the private high schools track all the scholarships their kids get at all the various colleges. And they add it all up and they say, you know, $6 million in scholarships this year. The public schools might also have $6 million in scholarships, but nobody there has the time to add it all up. Right. So they don't bother, you know, so... The top kids at the private school are getting the similar scholarships as the top kids at the, you know, the public and private. I don't want to just sit there, but the top kids at the public schools and the top kids at the private schools that look very similar are getting similar scholarships. The private school didn't magically right. generate a bunch of scholarships. Now, some families say, but that school kicked my kids butt and they did a lot more than they would have done at, at the lackadaisical yep. public school. And that's true, but it, don't try and tell me that it's going to save you money in the long run by paying the tuition. All it's going to do is have you pay more tuition in your lifetime. Yeah, it's actually more years of college type tuition. Like private high school is, is kind of crazy. It's right. equally. Exactly. But there's, there's nothing wrong with it, but just don't believe that. Right. Because I spent $75,000 on high school, I'm going to get $75,000 less on college. That's right. probably not true. And I just want to put this in there. It's some kids, it's right for that. Like some kids, oh, yeah. the, the huge, massive, and I'm in Berkeley, California, there's a massive public high school, not right for both my kids. Like it's right for some kids, it's not right for other kids. And, and that's one of the issues, right? For sure. And that's my path too. My oldest went to look at the private high school and he wanted to do it. My next one was 18 months behind and only one year in school behind, looked at how hard his brother was working. He said, I want nothing to do with that. Why would I leave my friends and go there and do homework all the time? I'll stay right where I'm at. And that was the right path for him. Yeah. Every kid, every kid's different. So just before we wrap up, I want to kind of come back to the personal side. If you could know one truth about any single life or question about your future, what question would you ask? If you knew you were going to get the right answer or get the true answer. Wow. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of decisions. You know, I'm in the process right now of expanding my business and you know, doing it the right way. And thinking about buying a building and you know so that immediately came to mind but it's like well would i waste it on that exactly <laughs> i feel like i get a wish you know <laughs> how you optimize your wish so to speak so i don't know what i would do. you're such an engineer how do i optimize this <laughs> you're such an engineer i need a spreadsheet for this <laughs> i love it it's like i yeah I mean, don't you're exactly right it's like there's gotta be a better question a higher value to me i just don't know what it is off the top of my head i don't think about it well, I don't know. So when you come up with the answer, you send me, ping me a note and I'll put it in the notes. Right. You don't get a pass, but we'll give you some time. Right. Yeah. And like I said, if I had it off the top of my head right now, it would be, you know, again, what I'm doing, you know, building out the stuff, the right path for, you know, is it, you know, will people use it and appreciate it? Or am I, should I be focusing in something different? Right. But that's again, kind of a short term thing. I'll build it and I'll find out pretty quickly that it's either, right or wrong, and then I'll build it again. But I think that the, you answered that question earlier a little bit when you said, I started doing this thing and I liked doing it. I was good at it. I liked it and I was good at it. Like, I think if your heart's in it, man, you're doing the right thing. Second quick thing here, sort of just before we wrap, is there anything people don't know about you that you really want them to know? Yeah, that I exist. I mean, I think that's the biggest challenge that, you know, what do you put in Google to find someone that's going to help you figure out how to plan and pay for college? 
we don't, right? My pipes are spraying all over the basement. What do I do? Well, I call a plumber. I know who fixes those problems. Who fixes my college problems? Again, because we're not, we're a new profession, you know, people don't automatically assume that, you know, don't know what to search for, don't know how to find us. Huh. Don't even know that they should find us because they know they have the problem, but they've never heard of anyone that solves these problems. So they don't even try. So Brad, what do they search for? What is it they should well, search for? To find you? They search. I think they just stumble through it because that's the way they did it when they were young, uh-huh. right? 10, 20 years ago, everybody just did the best they could. And today, 90% of the people are still doing the best they can. 10% have realized that, oh, I can hire someone to help me or take a course or study online information or read a couple books or there's lots of ways to get the information. But again, I think a big chunk of the population doesn't even know that there's something out there. You know, you want to keep something a secret, put it in a book. (laughs) So I just want to, I'm going to, this isn't necessarily for your services specifically, but we went through this process and we trusted our private high school to lead us in the right path and do the right thing and support us in the process. And I got to tell you, they weren't awesome. Like if I had it to do over again, I would have gone to somebody privately and gotten their support. So it was one-on-one with my son and, and they could have walked through it. It would have saved enormous headaches in my household battles. Like we're talking, you know, verbal screaming, yelling battles about the essay writing and the application process. And it would have saved us a lot of hassle to work with somebody else that went through the process with us. So I recommend it. Brad, thanks for coming on. We'll put all this stuff in the notes and then we will, we'll be live probably, like I think I said, mid-July. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.